you're all alone, flesh and bone by the telephone. Lift that receiver, I'll make you a believer. Take second pass, put me to the test. Things in your chest you need to confess. Yes, we deliver, you know I'm a forgiver. Hello and welcome to Chats, a television podcast, season 14, The Chatsovers. On this season of Chats, we are covering the HBO drama, The Leftovers. My name is Alan, and I'm joined by my very own personal Jesus. It's Magellan. Oh, what's that? My very own person. You're thinking of my what very own personal Venus from... Venus from uh, be my Yoko yeah. Ono by BNL. Yes. Which is based is that on what you're riffing song. on? No, in this show episode, they do. Pres- I think it's it's not Personal Jesus by Depeche Mode, but they they have a song that also references the same thing, which is Personal Jesus by Depeche Mode. Oh. Or this song is older. Maybe Personal Jesus is just a phrase people say, but that's what I'm referencing. Because you're my personal Jesus. You're my little. You're my little savior. You're my little my little personal sh- sheep. What's the she- relationship? Shepherd. shepherd. Well, Jesus is the shepherd. Then, yeah, what am I? Am I the, I'll be like, yeah, like a cute little sheepy. Sure. All right. I'm sheepish. But um, uh-huh. anyways, hi, guys. What's going on? How are you, Miguel? I'm doing swell. How are you doing? I'm swell and I'm doing. Wait. I'm. Hold Wait. on. Hold yeah. on. Wait. Huh? This sentence is structured backwards. Start it again. <laughs> turn the sentence around. I'm going to turn this whole structure around. English language needs to get turned around. And I'm going to read all my notes backwards. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm also doing really well. I uh, I just, I just like, not trauma dumped. I always want to use that term because it's fun to say, but it's not a real thing that happened. I just like said a lot of things to Magellan about my life before we started. Uh-huh. And so I'm feeling very like, like I've I've gone to confession, which is because you're my own personal Jesus. You see, that's why I said that. <laughs> you like that? I like that shit. <laughs> uh. If you don't know, we're two best friends who do a TV book club every week, and this month we are this month this season we're watching The Leftovers. It's one of my favorite shows, and I've never seen this third season, and so we're here to talk about it. This week on the yep. Transovers, we watched season three, episode three, crazy white fella thinking. In season three, episode four, G'day Melbourne, Crazy White Fellow Thinking, was written by Damon Lindelof and Tom Speziali. It was directed by Mimi Leader, and it aired April 30th, 2017. Magellan, can you tell me what happened in Crazy White Fella Thinking? In this episode, with the clock ticking, to- for a second I thought, it th- I thought it said tickling. No. But it doesn't. It says clock ticking. With the clock ticking towards the anniversary of the departure, Alan's changing it to say tickling. With the clock tickling towards the anniversary of the departure, Kevin Garvey Sr. Okay, don't get it twisted. This is the older one. The daddy, you might say. Uh, well. <laughs> daddy Kevin wanders the Australian outback in an effort to save the world from apocalypse. His mission? To make his way down the aboriginal song line and sing the song that will end the apocalyptic reign coming on the seventh anniversary. Alan, what'd you think of crazy white fellow thinking? Uh, I have been not let down, but surprised consistently week after week by the leftovers insistence on not being the show you think it's going to be. And <laughs> I think crazy white fellow thinking is another one of those where you go, oh, it's a Kevin senior episode. It's probably going to be this. 
And that it kind of is what you think it is. It kind of is appropriative in the way you think it's going to be. But it kind of is complicated and is weird. And there's also like a whole third act that is that makes this entire episode worth it by being about like shared grief and shared healing. Um, so I really felt conflicted because the first two thirds, I was like, I'm kind of sick of this. I'm, I think this is beautifully told and beautifully shot, but I have problems with the storytelling. And then by the end I was like, Oh damn it. Leftovers, you done did it again. You, mm, you did it again. You got the magic, the magic sauce still. So that's how I felt. What about you? Um, I had mixed feelings about this episode. I think what, I like about it is that this is the first time that we're seeing an episode that fully follows Kevin Sr., which allows us to interact with the show's themes in a particularly new way, because Kevin Sr. is the character who I think is kind of the most distanced from us from this point forward, because he's so wrapped up in the mysterious elements of season one, and he kind of flits in and out of the story whenever... uh, we want to add an air of mystery or confusion or whatever. So the show has intentionally been keeping him kind of separate from us. And so to then spend an entire episode in his world, um, I think allows us to, uh, you know, what it does for us is and what I like is I was worried that we were going to have a Kevin senior episode where, we would get a bunch of answers to things like he has some sort of secret access to like the realities of the mystery, whatever that is of the leftovers. And instead what we get is like lots of information about what Kevin senior thinks the answer is, but also lots of reasons to doubt his credibility yes. or to doubt his faith. Um, and so what I appreciate about the leftovers is it continues to try to, Make sure that we feel a sense of doubt in like, okay, well, is it as neat and tidy as this? Like, sure, maybe if I was watching a movie about the coming apocalypse, they might unironically do this aboriginal songline thing. But there's stuff in the text of The Leftovers where you can say what Kevin Sr. is doing is like irrational, doesn't have any basis in reality, probably isn't magical, um, is racist and the show is aware of that to a certain extent so i appreciate that it leaves itself open to that interpretation and gives us material to have that discussion um i think it ends up being like not the most like interesting episode because kevin senior has been built as a character who's meant to like appear briefly and play off of other characters be like partly comic relief or like be a contrasting opinion. And so for him to be the central character of the plot feels a little bit hollow to me because he's been constructed to like bounce off of people or Mm -hmm. to provoke other people to have like moments of change or moments of discovery. Uh, So he doesn't really have moments of change or discovery in this episode himself necessarily. Um, So, yeah, I was kind of mixed on it, but I think it's an interesting episode to bring into the conversation. I'm interested in what you thought about um, the third act, but I want to get there. Um, So let's talk about all the great stuff that you just said. Starting things off, um, I was confused that minute ago, but I just double checked my info. Uh, The song that plays at the top of the episode is a cover 
of Depeche Mode's Personal Jesus by an artist named Richard Cheese. And what Richard Cheese does is he covers popular songs in a like swing style, uh, to my understanding. So it's kind of like, isn't it funny if you make like this, you know, classic rock song into a swing song? Uh, like a so postmodern jukebox kind of thing or something. Exactly. Yes. Yes. So it's kind of cool that they're like, hey, here's the thing you think, but it's a little bit weird, just like the season, this whole season, honestly. Uh, and and speaking to like feeling that Kevin Senior is a character who works better when you see him in reaction to other people. I, I did enjoy the flashbacks to him and Kevin Jr.'s time together when Kevin Jr. was a kid recording little news reports. Uh, we hear about this through audio recordings and tapes that Kevin Sr. keeps around uh, on his person and is like playing these and listening in for secret clues. He thinks because he of in one of them and in a crucial one of them that uh, in a shaggy dog story that we'll talk about, he determines is like a key secret. He's like, oh, I sang in this tape. And so I need to listen to it. And then now we learn that like Kevin Jr. was a really fun guy who liked doing little news reports and talking to his dad. And his dad was a little bit distant, but he, you know, was into recording stuff. And, you know, as someone who was also really into recording stuff, I, I kind of enjoyed all of that. Like kid Kevin. Stuff. Mm. Those recordings are incredibly cute. Yeah, I don't know who they got for G- mm-hmm. young Kevin Jr., but he was very cute, and I, I got the sense that like yeah, Kevin, Kevin and Kevin's relationship was a was has transformed a lot over the years, and right. has like touched Kevin Sr. and stuck with him in ways that we haven't really gotten to see until now. So I did enjoy, I appreciated all of that in right. here, um, but to speak to the Shaggy Dog of it all, uh, the story. And the reasoning that Senior has for what he's doing this episode, which is, again, for clarification, he went to Australia. He took uh, – let me just give you, like, the broadest version of it because he has the scene where he sits down with Christopher Sunday and gives, like, a fucking eight-minute speech about it. And it's so long. He go, he's on. He gets high on some drugs that somebody gave him. He wakes up in Australia. He uh, discovers this one bird that survived during the departure. It points to a tape that he had of him singing. And he says, okay, singing, that's how I stop the apocalypse. I need to go down the Aboriginal song line and learn the songs from each group of, of Aboriginal group uh, people. And then I'm going to sing that and it's going to stop the flood that's going to end the world. Which, like, Huh? What do you what quest do you think you're on, dude? You're like an old guy on drugs. Like, what do you mean the Aboriginal song line? And that's where the episode kind of starts to play with your expectations and and brings into question whether or not this is like an appropriative story, or is it a story about someone who just is appropriative because of circumstance? It's like a really interesting thing. And it, it, it I I came out of it like really struggling with whether or not I was mad at Kevin Sr. or mad at the show for betraying things like this. Because this guy is just straight up going on, like, restricted land and, like, dress, like putting paint on himself and wearing their outfits and learning their songs in a way that feels so bad, you know? It feels like this guy is a right. bad person or something. Right. But he's sad and delusional, and the show knows that. And that's what makes it, like, kind of difficult how did, how did your gut feel yeah. about this while you were watching? I I really liked how much the world around Kevin Sr. was looking at him doing this stuff and saying, like, what the fuck are you doing? Why are you yeah. doing that? Like the um, 
I think it was like a cop or something when he gets arrested and he wants his tape back. And the guy's like, you stole that song. Like, you don't get to have that tape back. That's the property the, of someone else. Yeah. Yeah. Or the woman who's the liaison with the Aboriginal societies who's like, what the fuck? Like, why are you acting this way or why are you wanting access? And, you know, for as much as I found the super long monologue to Christopher Sunday a little uh, like it overstayed its wel- welcome, the fact that I got to just stare at that character's face so much and that actor so much and see him piece through like, okay, this guy's not uh, – it's what I don't know what he's doing, but let me hear him out. Maybe he'll fix my – air conditioner (laughs) yeah when he's like oh you're okay you want to go on your journey you want to stop the flood you want to stop the flood start there and he points at the leak in his roof i I thought that was like such a good moment Mm -hmm. um so you know those things i i was really happy to see them i think the thing that i'm kind of questioning right now is uh like you know, you can have a plot that criticizes a character all you want for kind of like for appropriating or whatever, mysticizing or fetishizing um, Aboriginal like culture and mythology and dance and all these things. And like, that's all well and good, but you didn't have to set your show in Australia, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, that's a choice. Exactly that in and of itself is like picking this place and these trappings because they are unusual or unfamiliar to the majority of the leftovers audience. Mm -hmm. And that in and of itself is an act that is like not so different from the kind of thinking that's motivating Kevin senior right now. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was a little, that was a little strange to me of like, yeah, you're making good points about how we interact with Aboriginal cultures, I I suppose. But like, this guy's from upstate New York. <laughs> yeah. Like, his cop, son lives in cop. Texas. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's stuff. We could do stories like that that are closer to these characters' points of origin if we wanted to. So I think, I'll you know, I'll wait to fully levy that critique until we see more of the Australia stuff and see more about how the, the season shakes out. Um, but you know, as much as the show is like self-aware and critical, it's also still using, uh, these kind of like Aboriginal cultural elements and visual elements to, uh, as decoration for the story or set dressing in a way that feels, not super cool to me. Every time Kevin Senior opens a door in this episode, the same like song starts playing, the Aboriginal song, yeah. and it feels like it's it's soundtrack. And uh, it's at this point that I'm I'm thinking, like you said, could you you could have easily done this story in Texas or in upstate New York, where there are also histories of uh, brutally uh, marginalized populations and like harmed nat- nations that lived there before the rest of us did uh uh-huh. 
but I also think that the leftovers is is like constantly moving its characters around like so much of the season is about the momentum of going to australia and how that's that's literally almost as far as you can go on the earth from where the show is and the idea that your problems still transfer over i think that is one reason why they do the australia stuff and number two is that the show is trying to tap into something very elemental about mysticism and magic and why we believe in those things and it believes well where is there more a sense of like attachment to the earth and connection to the to spirits of life and death better than aboriginal australians like that seems on paper like you're actually being really respectful and you're saying this is this is the right group of people that these characters would go to but yeah i think in our day and age what i would always rather see is like if you're either either yeah tell me a story about them doing this in america or tell me a story about other characters doing this in australia who are from australia Aboriginal culture is so beautiful to me. It's it's wild, wildly misunderstood by the rest of the world. And what I would like is to learn about it and to say, hey, this is why, you know, these ac- the actors have to change their name. Like, p- there are Aboriginal mourning rituals, for example. I was reading about uh, David Gulpilil, the actor who played uh, Christopher Sunday, uh, and how when they pass, they actually, like, have a name that's temporary for mourning in Aboriginal culture mm-hmm. and they go by a mm-hmm. different name for a few days until the family or the estate decides that they can change it. And like all that stuff is super interesting. But instead Christopher Sunday is relegated to like almost like a cameo. Like, Hey, look, we got a guy mm-hmm. anyways, he's dead. And it's like, well guys, <laughs> right. why did you right. do Like, why can't we just tell a story about Aboriginal people exploring their spirituality and their song and dance? Mm-hmm. You know, we yeah. had to bring Kevin senior all the way out here to do this when we could have just done it. And I think you could have yeah. honestly slam dunked a really great plot line about like, I don't know, not necessarily Grace, but like somebody in Grace's community who is of Aboriginal descent or whatever and is like, oh, I'm worried about the apocalyptic rain. But no, mm-hmm. we already brought Kevin Sr. here last season and we've been building to this. So he has to do it. And like yeah. you said, yeah, there's like the moment when Sharon, the woman that's like the liaison, sees the poster and she's like, what the fuck is wrong with you? You're appropriative. You're awful. But the show doesn't make him make he doesn't like seem like a bad guy necessarily. He just seems like a misguided old man. And it's like, oh, grandpa. But like you said, yeah. the season hasn't like wrapped up this plot yet with him. So we don't know what the ultimate goal with with Kevin Senior's plot is. Right, right, right. Yeah. And I, you know. I I take what you're saying about exploring, and I think that that's a valid train of thought that probably led the writers to go to Australia and to look into Aboriginal cultures. This idea of like, it's a show about faith. It's a show about belief. It's a show about uh, trying life to figure death. out, yeah, life and death and the world and how it was created and how it might be destroyed and... um you know, that sort of stuff feels relevant to the themes of the leftovers that they're trying to lay out that I think are, you know, I think this season is doing maybe the best job of being like, hey, it's a show about religion out of any of the seasons so far, to be honest, because I know we were talking at the end of season two about how uh, it doesn't feel like a show about religion prior to this point, really, mm-hmm. uh, that much. So I'm I'm with all that and also as much as it's like hey we're curious like you're saying we're curious about 
aboriginal cultures or faith uh we're also not i don't walk out of this episode really knowing that much right i know that the song line is a thing i can go do some research on that and learn a little bit more but the episode isn't actually that interested in looking at the like the actual beliefs or modes of community that constitute that culture or that faith. Yeah. It's just interested in a kind of like broad, broad understanding of like having faith in a thing. And so, you know, we're following Kevin senior because he's at this nexus point of passing through Aboriginal faith rituals and, also be having access to this weird kind of like cult of personality that's forming around his son. And so we can explore both through the same character. Yeah. But he's doing things that are like on their face reprehensible. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the show is like, yeah, but it's Kevin senior. Come on. And it wants us to kind of like go with him on that journey and see where he ends up. And, hold space for the possibility that he's right which yeah, there it is uh you know i'm not a huge fan of because if he is right then all of this conversation about like appropriating aboriginal culture and racism and whatever is moot because they just like pretended like they weren't doing the thing and then did the thing um i think that it, so. it, it rep this plot represents a really sharp differentiation from how Lindelof and company handled Lost, because the way that they uh -huh. would do that is it would it would be just what you said. He appropriates their culture, he does all the rituals, and then it works. And he goes, okay, I printed the rain. I know I did some effed up stuff to get here, but I did it. And then you're like, okay, well, yeah. I respect you. And they just do that. I think what I like about The Leftovers and how it handles things like this is they never, ever commit to like, yes, it is real. Or, right. yes, the machine that Nora is dealing with is for sure real. They're not going right. to do that. They're not going to tell you why people disappeared. And they're not going to tell you for sure that Kevin Sr. is preventing the apocalyptic rain. Even if he does a dance and rain stops. Or even if he does a song and rain stops. Like, no, it's it's going to always feel coincidental or happenstance because yeah. that's the nature of spirituality. And that's the nature of, like, how you cope with grief sometimes and to live... Uh, a life of faith, a life of like believing in something higher like Kevin Sr. does is to say, okay, this is probably awful, but at the end of the day, if I do what I'm trying to do, then it's okay. You know, the ends justify the means. Right. So I get it from his perspective, but I think that, like I was saying, everything else around this episode besides that songline stuff, pretty freaking interesting. Um, mm -hmm. And I want to talk about more of that stuff if we have, if we can. Yeah, let's let's do that. Yeah. So um, again, I wanted to shout out David Gulpilo, who plays Christopher Sunday. Um, amazing performance. Amazing performance. There's a document. He actually just tragically passed away from lung cancer last year. Oh no, that's sad. Um, yeah, and he did a documentary, or he was in a documentary about his life called "I Am Gulpilo," which is apparently really good. Uh, or my name is Gulpilo. Excuse me. Um, he's been in a ton of movies for like decades. He's in from from Crocodile Dundee upwards. Uh, and huh. friend of the podcast, uh, Ryan Sawinski, we were fortunate enough to have uh, send us some recommendations for 
works about Aboriginal culture, both film and television, uh, that quote unquote passed the smell test because uh, Ryan is Australian. (laughs) He's not an expert, but he has connection in his own family to Aboriginal culture, as well as growing up in a well-populated Aboriginal town. So um, in the show notes, I'll be putting all of his recommendations for folks. We're probably going to pilot at least one one or two of those shows. They seem really interesting. There's good stuff out there. So, you know, I wanted to Very come cool. out of this episode positively talking about that stuff. Um, yeah. So thank you to Ryan for that. Yeah, thank you, Ryan, for, for that. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, some other things happened in the episode. Just briefly, um, Kevin Sr. receives the book of Kevin, his son, from Matt Jameson. And there's a couple uh-huh. of really funny phone calls where, uh-huh. you know, Matt is like, hey, did you get the book? And he's like, yeah, I got the fucking book. And he, like, picks it up, does all the work to get it out of the from the mail. And just starts crossing things out and he's like this is wrong this is stupid he just writes like fuck this over and over again on the paper and then he throws it away and then later uh at like you know time zones like three in the morning matt's time he's like matt i need you to find out what happened to christopher sunday i need him and he's like matt uh what about about the book uh kevin and he's like oh i threw that away and matt's like that was uh the only copy (laughs) my book i think hmm. you just that, threw away well, that, the master it was a it was a photocopy of it or was it it was yeah it was the only photocopy though right was that the idea yeah i, I think so yeah because the like physical handwritten copy is what kevin jr has which he burns in the second episode yeah spoiler alert, spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah gotcha gotcha so that's just i just enjoyed seeing matt intersect and being like do you know what time it is and it's like bright sunny desert in uh-huh. Australia, and then uh, Matt is at like four in the morning, and his his son is like handing him the phone. Uh-huh. Did right. you feel weird seeing his son being old enough to give people the phone? Yeah, I was like, what? But oh, right, three years. That's yeah, right. Three, I forgot about that. Three beefy years. Yeah. Uh, uh, it was amusing to me. So the first time he talks to Matt about the book of Kevin, he's like, "I'm not in it, asshole." <laughs> and, <laughs> That that's interesting to me. I I wish I, we could get a little more interiority on the guys who are writing the book of Kevin and what has led them to agree. Like we sort of skip over that because of this three year time jump, which I think is putting us in a position where yeah we're doing stuff in Australia and uh, there's the seven year anniversary and there's kind of like big events that are happening, but yeah. I'm feeling like we lost out a bit on some character movement because all of a sudden these folks who, you know, John and Matt Jameson and Michael and now Kevin Sr., they're all kind of, uh, they've agreed to be like apostles of, of Kevin or something. <laughs> and it's like, how did, how did that happen? And for a show that wants to examine you know, how faith traditions start or how we can kind of assign supernatural significance to coincidences or unusual events or whatever. Um, It really just sort of fast forwards through that in a way that's kind of like, ah, I want to know what are the other conversations that Kevin Sr. and and Matt have been having. Um, But it was amusing that Kevin Sr.'s wanting to make sure that he ends up in the new Bible, basically. Yeah. Um, and he's like, funny. it's it's Kevin. I'm not a character in Kevin Jr.'s story. He's a character in mine, I think he says in this episode also. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which really says a lot about, like, maybe we shouldn't 
think Kevin Senior is a cool dude for everything he's doing in this episode. Like further solidifying that he is doing a lot of this in a self-centered way. Like I am on my journey and my son right. is involved. I don't care though. And it's like you you're wrong, dude. <laughs> this isn't your right. show. We're not we're, even if this is your episode, it's not your show. Right. And it says a lot about him as a dad, right? Yeah. Uh which I think is is interesting. It's a sad but true thing that often parents can do, which is to ref- to frame their child's lives as like working towards something long term for them, as opposed to them working long term towards their kids. Uh, which you know, controversial subject, but like I personally believe that you should work your life towards your children once you have them, and help them, and not treat them as like something that makes you you know maybe it's a harmony though it's a complicated thing. Maybe we yeah. we all just help each other. Um. I wanted to talk about the businessman scene, the businessman in the middle of the desert. Yeah, go ahead. One thing that I thought was an interesting moment, um, just about fathers and sons and about Kevin Sr.'s role here, when he's talking to Matt about the story of uh, Abraham and Isaac. (laughs) No kids in the Bible. (laughs) Yeah, and Matt's like, no kids in the Bible. And he's like, well, what about that guy who like was going to sacrifice his kid or whatever? (laughs) 35. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and Matt says that Isaac was like a full-on adult when Abraham went to sacrifice him, yeah. which is like a funny moment and also gets you thinking about, um, you know, puts Kevin Sr. and Kevin Jr. kind of in a similar position yeah, uh, and makes you think about how someone doesn't have to be a child for their father to like have a sort of power over them or to expect a certain license over their existence um or to feel a certain like sense of control or self-centeredness or whatever so i think it's like a pretty deft illusion because it's amusing and also gets you to think about well that's kind of how old kevin jr is 30 mm-hmm. something probably um yeah so I, I like that little exchange yeah I, the one thing white male writers especially are good at is father and son relationships so <laughs> well they might not be good at father and son relationships but they're good about writing about them sorry that's it's... what i meant that's what i meant right they're <laughs> obsessed with and have a lot of experience in writing about them yeah mm-hmm. um here's a fascinating scene that ties into the second episode um once we get past all the songline stuff and christopher sunday is tragically killed as kevin senior falls off of his roof and lands <laughs> on him as that just sucks especially but that like sucks in the right way where it's like wow you really are just gonna like use their culture and then harm them and you're aware that you did it but you're not gonna undo that harm you're just gonna keep your head down and keep moving which is again where i'm like i don't like kevin senior by the middle of this episode um while he's in the middle of the desert though he sees a businessman uh who prepares to immolate himself because he wasn't taken by the sudden departure and kevin senior's like dude what no stop don't do that He's like, no, I'm going to just do it. And he like puts gasoline all over himself and then starts doing it. But before that, he asks Kevin Sr. this question that comes up later, which is, uh, would you kill a baby if it could cure cancer? How do we feel? First of all, that we get both answers in these episodes because Kevin Sr. is like, no, I wouldn't do that. And the guy's like, okay. And then he immolates himself. Um, And then later, Nora is like, yeah, different answer. Just to clarify, he's upset because you said because he wasn't taken by the sun departure, but I got the sense it was he was trying to get the same thing that Nora was in the second episode of this organization. Oh, it wasn't that, led into the machine. 
Yeah, I think that's what it was. And they have this screening question that uh, we hear for the first time here and it's in the back of our heads. And he, what's fascinating about it is uh, he's like, yeah, you know, would you kill a baby to cure cancer? Uh, And he's like, I said no. And that was like the wrong answer for them and they wouldn't let me do their thing. And then in the next episode, Nora says, yes, she would. And, they and that do it. is also gets her kicked out. So we're sort of wondering like, well, hold on. We saw both answers and they were both wrong. So is there a right answer or like a way that they want people to answer? Um, which I thought was like a really fascinating kind of stealthy connection across the two episodes. I didn't make the connection that he was coming from there. That's really savvy that you'd made the reverse connection. So good on you. But I, I just thought he was, yeah, I, it made, it makes sense retroactively. Um, and I think if I had to guess, it's a question that you're not supposed to have a firm answer to. Mm-hmm. Like maybe the correct answer is to say like, I can't answer that. Right. Uh, and I accept that I can't like accept that you're never going to know the answer because it's similar to like, would you go into this machine if it meant that you could see your loved ones probably, but mm-hmm. you would die and lose all your loved ones here. And so like, right. you shouldn't, you shouldn't be able to say like, yes, for sure. Cause that means that you're like too callous and no also means that you're too hard or le- you're not, you're lacking in empathy in a way. So I mm-hmm. think that's what they're trying to do here is like you shouldn't be able to easily answer the question of would you kill a single child if it meant that it could cure cancer because that's a moral question. And some people, you know, we're getting to like stuff that The Good Place talks about, right? Like do you weigh an individual human life as as sacred as a million human lives? And if so, why? And do you view a child's life more? Like all that stuff. It's interesting. I think it's really interesting. Um, And we'll talk about that more in the second episode, but... Kevin's uh, tape gets destroyed. Ironically, he's trying to stop the rain, and then his tape gets destroyed in the rain. So, like, what is he even doing at this point? Uh, This is where he gets bit by a snake. Kind of a scary scene, a little bit more violent than I expected. Kind of brutal. Uh, When he saw a cross, I wrote in my notes, please, please, please don't collapse in front of the, the cross. My nose can't carry your weight on it because this is so on the nose. And then my next note was... And then when he fell on it, I wrote, ow, my nose. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. (laughs) Thank you. Good job. He is saved by a a woman, a person on horseback um, and wakes up Mm -hmm. under a globe with a cute dog and an IV. And then we have to watch Kevin Senior pull out a catheter. I don't want to see him pull out a catheter. No thanks, guys. Yeah, he like rips it out. Like, dude, just be, take another moment to not do that that way. You can do it slowly and safely. You didn't have to yank Uh, it. Yeah. No reason. No reason for that. This is at the point where um, Kevin calls Matt to be like, wait, we got to get Christopher. And then Matt, after learning, he got rid of the book, says, go fuck yourself. And I've I've never been so satisfied by a go fuck yourself in a TV show before. Yeah. Yeah. Hearing Um, Matt Jameson say that is is awesome. That's satisfying. You threw it away? My friend, you've got to move past that dumb book of yours. I don't know where I am. But once I find out, I'm going to need your help and get into this hospital. Yeah. Go fuck yourself. Uh, these people put a photo album in their freezer for some reason. I guess they don't have space. 
or something? Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's a passport in there and stuff, so that stuff seemed clearly like it was being hidden there. Yeah. Um, so maybe the photos be were being hidden there too, but I'm not sure. That was her Grace's photos, right? Yes. Yeah, I, I would imagine she was hiding them. Was it photo? What was it? Photos of her kids? I think it was photos of her kids. Yeah. So maybe it's like, that's like Nora with the tattoo. Like I need to hide this and never look at it. Yeah. But I want to keep it. So I put it in the freezer. So I never, you would never think to look for it there. Right. Right. I love Grace's performance so much. I was so happy to learn her story here and see this actress perform. Lindsay Duncan is her name. Um, She has this incredible conversation with Matt. It's the, it's the peak of the episode in my opinion where she talks about her grief and her story of um, she had a bunch of, she had several children and the moment of the departure, she was so worried that she assumed they had been departed because they weren't where she usually expects to see them. And it turned out she found out later they were found dead because they went out into the outback because they assumed that she had departed and they died in the outback. So she had to bury her like five children, which is where the cross was that Kevin senior landed on top of. And so naturally, when you look for and when you're grieving, uh, you look for things to latch onto. You look for things to make meaning. He had a piece of paper in his hand that was a, that said something about Kevin, and it read like scripture. She says, "So she goes, well, I mean, this is all a story I tell myself. It's it's I don't even know if Kevin is real, if this is real, but I did really kill a guy." I killed a cop thinking he was the Kevin because why wouldn't he be the Kevin? He lives like three miles away. Wouldn't it make sense that I, the guy near me is the right Kevin? I don't think it was. And this whole time you're watching Kevin Sr. be like, yep, totally feel you, Grace. Totally agree. I also have done a lot of dumb stuff because I am also <laughs> a crazy white person. Sorry to say this, but I'm a crazy white person. Crazy white fella. Yeah, yeah. I'm a crazy white fella. They both are. And uh-huh. they both realize like, what the fuck are we doing? We're making up yeah. narratives for ourselves to make this feel good, but we're just we're not letting ourselves like really grieve. We're just sitting in like meaning making. And it's so sad, dude. I right. I like got choked up at not even just Grace's story, but the way that Kevin Sr. realizes that he's the same. That he also is like, What is this about drum line about song lines and I'm putting their pay like what am I doing? You know, you see it all in the performance there. Yeah. But then he kind of like retreats away from that and is like, well, yeah, you just had the wrong Kevin. There is like an immortal Jesus Kevin. It's my son. Uh, you know, wrong Still Kevin, but him. right right idea. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, uh, you know, I think it works for me that moment because mm-hmm. like the Grace monologue is so good. Everybody she watch had, this if you want. I'm not going to put the whole clip in here. Please watch her monologue at the end of this episode. It's amazing. Yeah, she does an incredible job. The story is heartbreaking. It's really well told. And then for that tension and that moment of like just sort of raw honesty and regret to be punctured with Kevin Sr. being like, well, I'm on this show called The Leftovers. And, <laughs> Let me tell uh, you about the series I'm on. <laughs> <laughs> for that to be the way the episode ends in this sort of like uh whimper of like you know there's like a greater mystery i think works really well for me as a kind of anti character arc in a way 
Uh, yeah. Where, as opposed to this being a journey where Kevin Sr. learns, like, hey, maybe what I'm doing is wrong and irrational, it's one where we're like, dude, pay attention to your plot, and you'll learn that what you're doing is not right. And he's right. like, I'm so right. Oh, man, I'm the best. Um, and that, that works for me. And I, I'm looking forward to seeing where it goes now that by the end of the second episode, his son is along for the ride. <laughs> oh, boy. Part of it. Yeah, part of it. Yeah, there. It, I thought that season three was going to start with everybody together, but foolish me, it's actually a season about everybody getting together. Yeah. And so it's going to conclude with this probably, hopefully, really great moment of everybody together and what are that what do they do when they're with the future messiah or whatever they think kevin jr is can i make a prediction uh-huh i think it's gonna rain on the 17th anniversary of the departure but it's gonna be like a nice light rain mm-hmm. and everyone's gonna sort of stand in the rain oh and like wait yeah and oh. then be sort of like cleansed by this like uh, anticlimactic but somehow precious mundane rainstorm oh my god that's so that's such a good prediction and i think that's right actually thank you thank you oh i love that also funny to me we will see we're getting there we're barreling towards a conclusion um i just wanted to say it's funny it's becoming more and more funny to me that the book of kevin like we think of that as like kevin is such a normal name but that's like the book of mark the book of matthew like it actually fits it's a modern day version of one of those names of like a biblical book you know it just happens to be that kevin is a more traditional name these days so maybe like a thousand years from the end of the leftovers they're like people naming their kid kevin after the guy from the bible (laughs) (laughs) but that's the main stuff i have I, I I kind of like based some of my takes from this episode on Emily St. James's review of the episode for Vox back in 2017. Uh, uh-huh. I I also want to link that in the episode. It's just a really good review, and uh, I think she liked the episode a lot more than we did. But uh, I always try to find like dissenting opinions a little bit from us, so it was like really useful in coming to this from a level-headed perspective and not just being like it's racist. Bye, you know. Um. So shoutouts there. Did you have any stray notes though? So there's this one moment that I'm noticing in my notes that is such a great bait and switch moment where Kevin Sr. is describing to Christopher Sunday his experience in Australia and he is talking about how he had this like big, big, long drug trip that started in Sydney (laughs) and ended on the other side of the country in Perth. And he says that like this one thing that he remembers is he saw this TV and the way that it's being set up, you're thinking that he's going to say like, I saw my son on the TV because in an international assassin, he's tripping on the drug that he mentions in this episode. Mm -hmm. So all we would need is for this other side of it to be confirmed. And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, there's this sort of supernatural stuff going on. But instead, he says that he saw Tony the chicken <laughs> on the TV. And you're like, okay, leftovers. Good job. Nice work. Forever um, refusing to give us the clean supernatural answers that we think we're looking for. Yeah. So I like that. Yeah, that was great. And uh, yeah, again, t- Tony the chicken, perfect name. Perfect name for a chicken. That's all I got. Fabulous. Um, in that case, we will be right back 
after a brief musical break to discuss. Good day, Melbourne. Welcome back to the Chatsovers. The second episode we watched this week was season three, episode four of The Leftovers, entitled G'day, Melbourne. It was written by Damon Lindelof and Tamara P. Carter, directed by Daniel Sackheim. It aired May 7th, 2017. Alan, what happened in G'day, Melbourne? I feel like I have the energy of your students sometimes in that as soon as you start talking, I need to mess with you. So in the notes, I just started bolding and italicizing the thing Magellan was just reading. I got to tell you, this is the mistake I made today in class and related to that is, uh, you know, you try lots of different ways to ask students to not talk while you're talking or while somebody else is talking. Um, And... You know, my co-teacher and I are saying like, hey, you know, like it's really hard for us to focus on each other when people are talking and whatever. You frame it in a sort of like straight up um, treat them like adults kind of way and emphasize that stuff. And then I was like, also, just so you guys know, I have like superhuman hearing so I can hear (laughs) I can hear all of everything that you're saying when you whisper to each other. And then there are these two boys in the corner who are like, hey, Mr. Fluke, Mr. Fluke, hey, hey, hey Magellan, hey. Like, just like whispering <laughs> progressively more quietly to try and test it. That's awesome. And I was, I was like, I heard that. Yep, heard that too. Uh-huh. And my co-teacher was like, okay, let's stop testing Mr. Fluke's superhuman hearing. <laughs> Uh, so. He's very sensitive. You can hurt him if you yell too loud, guys. Be yeah. Careful. So a bit of a miscalculation on my part, but you know we're having fun. We're having a good time. We're having a great time. Yeah. You're gonna mess with me though. I was just kind of bolding and underlining the thing while oh, you were reading it. You didn't even yes, notice. You were. I did notice it. Okay. Now next time I'll like mess with the font size to make it really unreadable for you. In this episode of The Leftovers, Kevin and Nora travel to Australia, where she continues to track down the masterminds of an elaborate con, while he catches a glimpse of Evie Murphy, forcing him to confront the traumatic events of three years earlier. Oh, Majan, this is the, this, this, this episode. When I say this that high, you know I like the episode a lot. I loved Good Day, Melbourne, because it is so sad. It is people talking about their feelings. Uh, it is acknowledging that we haven't been talking enough about our feelings. It felt therapeutic to me. I loved almost all of this episode. I had problems with some of the Kevin plotline stuff. I had problems with Laurie in this episode. But otherwise, when you get to that hotel scene at the end, oh, that's the meat and spaghetti that I like it very much. Thank you. This is offensive to someone. I'm sorry in advance. Please tell me what you thought of the episode. <laughs> I need to be like um, this is like the most depressing shit ever. Yeah. 
I think. Good. Uh, I'm glad you think is your podcaster. <laughs> Sorry. Duh, bro. Duh. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think this is a very well crafted episode. I think I felt a certain attachment to Kevin and Nora's relationship and like a desire to see it function. That makes me sad that it is so dysfunctional. Um, and, uh, you know, I, it was hard for me to separate the feeling of like being stressed out and sad in a way that the show wanted me to feel from like, okay, is this good or bad? You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the show, this episode is extremely good at ruining everything. <laughs> and that's like kind of a not the mood I was in, maybe. I don't know. But it's a really good episode of TV and it's well, well made for sure. It's a slow motion car crash. Yes. But what's yeah. fascinating about it is it's a car crash where you should, if you looked at the gas meter at the front, you would have realized you were out of gas before you even hit the highway. The literal opening song that plays as they get into the airport is called This Love is Over by Ray LaMontagne and the Pariah Dogs. We already know this is about a failed relationship. And we weren't paying attention because you're like, oh, this is a nice little bluesy, jazzy song. The song is ca- and called and the guys repeatedly saying this love is over. There is no more love between Kevin and Nora by the end. Or it's, I mean, it's complicated, right? It always is. It always has. That's how love works. But from the, from the scene in the airport to the scene in the hotel, we get the sense that these are two people who have been together out of a lot of circumstance and out of shared grief and don't actually feel like they're there for each other. And that's what makes it so sad when they finally seem to be separated by the end. Um, it's yeah. And like I said, it's about people, you know, it's about how does, why does this relationship feel this way? What are they both separately dealing with that? They're not telling each other. And why does that make this relationship fundamentally broken in a way? Um, so it's super interesting, but let's get into it. Uh, I love this moment at the, in the airport. All the airport stuff is super funny. Like the, the agent making Kevin take the long route because Nora has, is it called like global pat travel, global pass? Global entry, I think, is what it's called. Pretty sick. Um, let's talk about what. Let's talk about white privilege and Nora's ability to smuggle twenty k without even remotely getting in trouble. Uh, right, right, right. Uh, she keeps her watch on through TSA so that they ask about that, and she goes, "Oops, sorry, my watch." And like, get, and then they just go, "Go ahead, you can pass on through." And uh, she comes through, and she has twenty thousand dollars taped to her body because right. she needs it to pay the people. And <laughs> this, is the, this is the kicker. Kevin's like, you could have just given me 10000 That's the limit. And she's like, what? Oh. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she goes, hmm. <laughs> Doesn't even consider that the man she's with, that she is like in a com- theoretically committed relationship with, could in any way help her. He's just there out of momentum. Right. A- amazing. So funny, but also so sad. Yeah, I mean, I think that moment is, it's really funny, and it's also a microcosm for what this episode is about that you sort of laid out at the beginning there of, you know, how how have these two people who need so much uh, just completely missed each other at this yeah. point? Yeah, Like, they're not talking about their problems, they're not asking each other for help, they're not being honest with each other. It's just this sort of like web of concealing things or telling each other half realities or whatever. 
And it's sad because, you know, at the onset of their relationship, I think what was so special about it for both of them was that moment where it's like Nora, Kevin, and Jill on the couch. And Kevin's like, hey, I watched somebody kill themselves. And Nora's like, yeah, I pay prostitutes to shoot me. Yeah. And then everybody just like laughs it off. Yeah. And there's this kind of like radical acceptance moment. Um, and it's it's sad. And I think a reality of quite a, quite a very many relationships in real life that that ends up that sort of acceptance and like, you know, communication deteriorates as there are moments of distrust or like kind of imperfect communication or imperfect love that compound and make people feel less and less safe with one another. That's a moment that, yeah, is is that in microcosm? And that's ultimately what this episode is is about overall. And it's sad, but I think it's pretty well rendered here. Well rendered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and and every scene feels like it's building towards what you already know, which is this relationship collapsing. And like you said, we watched this last season and we said, wow, this like family unit is a little bit busted, but they're putting the pieces together. You know, they have their their foundation in, in uh, Jarden was not so sound. That house was not super safe, but they made it work and they made their 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 collaboration work. And now it's like, OK, what happens when you do that for three years? Right. And you, you know what this feels like to me? What is it? Yeah, what does it feel like? Uh oh, before before midnight? Yeah, yeah. Oh my god, midnight. I knew it. I knew <laughs> you were gonna say it. It totally does. Yeah. But like in and the some, opposite way, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like before midnight if you don't watch the last like five minutes or whatever. Yeah, right. Um because I mean not to spoil it, but if people aren't familiar with the before series, it's these movies that are it's you follow the same two characters in seven year intervals uh, in real time. And so you see them meet, you see them reunite. And then the third movie of the trilogy before midnight is these characters have been together now for, uh, for seven years. They've been in a relationship since the previous movie. And uh, the movie explores like, what does that look like when you've had the same fights a million times when you are sick of each other, like, uh, you know, what does it look like when things blow up and you have a moment where it looks like everything could be over? Do you decide to like keep going? Is that a good thing? How do you like heal or reaffirm your commitments to each other? Um, and I wonder if the rest of the season is gonna ask about that or look yeah. into it. Uh, to to continue on this thread because we are leaving our characters in a pretty vulnerable position where those questions are are posed but not answered. Um, so I, I'm looking forward to season three following a similar path but with a kind of leftovers spin. On Everything it. I hear is that the leftovers season three is about reconciliation and people coming together mm. and yet all of my instincts point to this being a permanent separation uh, because of Nora's plot What line. makes you say that? Well, Nora's plot line seems like it can only conclude with her getting in the machine, right? Like, she just has to do it now. Mm-hmm. When, you tell, when you tell someone like Nora Durst, you're never going to be able to do this. I know you right. wanted to, and you said you wanted to do it for, you know, a sting operation, but you actually really wanted to do it. I right. think that her plot for the rest of the season is 
fuck everything else. I'm going in that thing. Ever since she lifted that parking yeah. gate, I was like, Nora's doing it. No one is stopping her. And that's so sad to me because what's on, if this works in the hypothetical reality that it works, what is on the other side? A husband who didn't, who was not committed to her and children that she had trouble raising. Like, mm-hmm. oh, God. Oh, I can't even start to think about the implications of her doing it. But, you mm-hmm. know, it's a lot of ifs, you know. And if you believe in X, Y, Z, then it would be really sad if she left. I hope right. that she decides not to do it. And maybe the future that we saw is a parallel world. Maybe it's a Nora, like after Kevin has died and she doesn't want to talk about him, you know, and those, that's that flash forward that we saw. Um, but I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly Nora's plot, whether or not she like walks into whatever machine this is, has to, in this episode, like she is not being honest with herself or the people around her about what she wants. Um, and I think like we were talking about in the first half, when she gives her answer to their screening question, I think the apprehension that they probably feel about her is that feeling of like, she's just saying what she thinks people want her to say. She's not really fully sitting with the fact that she is feeling uncertain or doesn't know what she wants to do. Um, and she hasn't really decided like if she wants to live, she hasn't really decided if she wants to see her kids, she hasn't really decided to, you know, move forward in her life or not. Um, and so she is going to have to make some kind of a decision in the face of that between now and the end of the season. I wonder what that looks like for her. Me too. Me too. Like, and and how do we get to that flash forward? They're, do, yeah. they're you know they're doing the last thing where you're like, okay, we've seen the finish line, but what the hell gets us there? Right. Is it is it her accepting that she can't be with Kevin and moving out on her own? Is it going into the machine and it working? Is it going into the machine and not working? And that's the afterlife. Who the frick knows? We'll find out. But meanwhile, back in this episode, back in the present day, um, Nora tells Kevin that this is well actually. Before she tells him it's a sting operation, they have sex in the airport bathroom, which is so passionless because, uh, A, that's like the worst place to have sex, you guys. Come on. An airport bathroom? Super gross. Second of all, uh, they cut the audio from it and immediately start her describing the machine to him, which is like so clinical, where she's like, yeah, and there was all these people and they had videos while they're still having sex, which I think is an editing technique to show you like oh, we're already past this. We just, like, do this, and we don't think too much about it, and then we just move on. I don't know. We, like, do sex with each other sometimes. We don't feel it. Uh, mm. That's how I interpreted the the cut the cutting there and the editing there. Um, um, yeah, I think I had a different interpretation. Um, I think it could be read multiple ways. Uh, to me, I think it's a moment where they, like... They meet and they have a certain kind of intimacy that is, you could argue the extent to which it's healthy um, because later Nora makes this joke when Kevin's like, well, what are you going to say if they know I'm here? And she's like, oh, I'll just say we're in a toxic codependent relationship and we've decided we're better apart than together. And he's like, ha ha ha. Good one. Really funny. That yes, sweetie, <laughs> like do that. So there is some level of of toxicity, I think, to 
or just codependence let's just leave it at that to like mm. them being like i need to feel connected to you right now in the airport bathroom let's fuck um and the music is making us feel like there's something about this that i'm not supposed to like um but i think the layering of the audio of her explaining the situation to me that's meaningful in the sense that she's like letting him in a little bit and explaining something to him that she was keeping from him before uh she doesn't fully let him in uh and you know let me go here for a second as they're having sexual intercourse they shift from a position where they're facing each other to a position where they're not facing each other and that i think kind of mirrors the way in which in this situation there is a sense of intimacy and communication that is then disrupted by concealing or distance or whatever Mm -hmm. um so there's something there i also really thought it was uh poetic that as we're looking at kevin uh having sex with nora from behind blurred in the background just behind him is a sign they're in like the um family bathroom and this is a changing table Oh, and yeah. so there's there's a little symbol of like a parent changing a diaper behind Kevin as he's having sex with Nora. And so it's, I think, also this scene that is meant to talk about uh, the kind of elephant in the room for them, which is like the difficulty that they've had in creating a family together and how that is ultimately the the sort of fissure between the two of them um, is huh. like that ab- that absence. So I thought that was like kind of beautiful in a way. <laughs> no, I mean very very well said. I didn't even I didn't even pick up on the yeah, like I'm watching the scene back now. Uh and just like the zoom in on Nora's face and then there's like babies on the wallpaper. Yeah. And oh my god, that's so clever. Stop. And then yeah, the rack focus <laughs> onto the baby changing station as a, oh my god, that's very good. That's very good, guys. Yeah. Uh and yeah, you're just getting the sense that these are like two people who are who are drifting apart, but also finding things in each other. And so she reveals to him that the real reason she, well, quote unquote, real reason that she's doing this whole thing with the machine is it's a sting operation, and she's not actually authorized by her department to do it, but she's just going to do it. And it's kind of like ask for forgiveness. I think mm-hmm. uh, she's just gonna take them down and then tell people later that she did it. Uh, we get to their hotel, and. Uh, what is the what is the what is the big stuff that happens here? I think she is this when they find out about the book. I believe this um, is the book of Kevin stuff. Maybe. Yeah, they're kind of jokingly talking about it. She's like, "Oh, have you read that thing?" She makes fun of him a bit, and uh, he kind of brushes it off and says that he read it on the plane. And then she's reading part of the book. She's like, "Okay, prove it," and she reads a part of the book that's about him pushing. Uh, patty into the well yes and he knows he knows what happens next because it happened not because he read the book but because he knows that and she's like man matt thinks of the wildest stuff um which certainly i'm sure feeds kevin's worry that he can't be totally honest with her um because she's Mm -hmm. so like kind of dismissive of this thing that happened to him 
and then Nora gets this call, get on this bus, come here. And Kevin's like, okay, well, I'm going to follow you. <laughs> Nora's like, don't. No, don't follow don't. me. Um, which I thought was kind of funny. It's so sad. Like, imagine being on a, a cross-globe trip with your partner. And you're like, yeah, mm-hmm. we're going to do this thing together. This is going like, to strengthen our relationship. And they're like, I'm going to go do my own thing, actually. Don't come. And you're like, well, right. what the fuck do I do? Like, I feel so bad for Kevin here. And the camera focuses on different parts of the book of Kevin. It says um, he feared he had lost his mind for to drink the poison was insanity or was it faith? Which is kind of how the show cuts and takes a break from Nora's perspective when we get the Kevin plot of the episode. Um, so let's let's talk about that one before we get into Nora's adventures with the machine and uh, her tests. Um, so Kevin is watching Good Day Melbourne where uh, these hosts are doing their usual like morning TV kind of thing. They're making pancakes and it's like a, you know, a Good Morning America thing where there's people in the background. And he sees a woman who seems to look who looks just like Evie, Evie Murphy, holding up a sign uh, referencing Surah, I believe, which is a passage in the Quran about the apocalypse. And he's like, that's Evie. Why is Evie Murphy in Australia? That's really weird. And knowing that Kevin has relationships with like talking to people through TV is the first thing he says is, can you hear me? And he says it in this very like quiet, like, can you hear me? Like, I love that. It's like, he's, he's so used to it. He's so in his like real is his version of reality that he thinks it's going to work. Uh, and from here on, we start to doubt the reality of his whole interpretation of everything. Uh, this leads him to uh, a really funny, like, speaking of good editing moments, uh, scene where he goes outside of the hotel and, like, runs up to someone as the music starts swelling. And it's like, oh, my God, where is, like, what is this? What's about to happen? What's this, like, big gray thing that he's going to go up and talk to? <laughs> and it's a guy in a koala suit. Uh, just, like, I kind of liked the comedy of that. And he's like, where do they film it? He tells him where it is. He goes there. She's not there. He sees her in an alleyway, chases her to an alleyway. And she's like, I don't know who Evie is. I'm uh, uh, Dania Moabizi. And he's like, what? And then this guy sees him. And you get this really uncomfortable moment where the guy is like, do I have to be, do I have to save this girl right now? Is this guy about to attack her? Like, this looks awful for Kevin. You know, he's screaming at a young Muslim woman woman in an alleyway obviously this is gonna look bad i don't even know i kevin's just like uh i think that this is a person i know this has to be a person i know that's the only way anything makes sense um Mm -hmm. did this Mm -hmm. like dania stuff did you like any of this did you like find this interesting Mm, i I don't know i mean i think (sighs) i fell for it for what it's worth uh, uh, for a moment there, I was like, okay, I'm willing to go there that it's an EV thing. But then as soon as he took a picture and sent it to Lori and we didn't see it, yeah, I was like, okay, it's not actually EV. That picture is going to be somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I think I never really loved the stuff from season one about it's Kevin Kevin's yeah and this sort of like is he having a psychotic break type stuff um i i liked the patty stuff just because i thought that she was an incredible actor and like a great asset to the show and that felt like a 
fine enough supernatural or not question of like am i haunted by a ghost or am i just like seeing someone who isn't there but uh, uh you know i don't i don't know about this stuff i'm not i'm just not really sure what to make of it uh yeah they they want to bring back i guess this doubt of like is everything okay with kevin is he gonna start to hear voices again or hallucinate or see a version of reality that isn't reality um i'll sort of let them take that wherever they want to take it before i really pass judgment on it but uh it's just not my favorite stuff in the Mm -hmm. leftovers i think so it it yeah the conclusion annoyed me a bit and also this brings me to my problems with laurie in this episode um Mm -hmm. or just my qualms i guess because Kevin, this is like the saddest thing about this is he's like, okay, who is like the woman in my life that I ask about big problems and I, my doubts and worries? All right, let mm-hmm. me call Lori. And it's like, right. fuck, dude, your ex-wife? Like you're really going to – that's who you call? Uh, we get a brief scene, by the way, of her and John doing another one of their little – I don't want to call them grifts because I know they're not making – they're not keeping the money, but they are lying to people. Uh, and – there is an amazing match cut here, by the way, where, you know, at the end of this reading, we cut back to the Nora plot line and the audio is Lori or, or John, I think, saying he's saying it to the father, to the man that he's helping. He says she she referring to his wife. She was ready to go and she wishes, wishes she could have told you, but she just couldn't. And then we cut to Nora and you're like, oh, fuck. Ooh, that's Woof, nice. dude. That's, that's that's a that's a sauce. <laughs> you yeah. made a sauce. Yeah, you made a sauce right there. That's good stuff. I loved that, and it just it it allowed the John and and Laurie thing to like connect to our main plot without feeling hammy. Um, but then yeah, Laurie just kind of like does this breakdown for Kevin, where once again she's like, you know, I told you, you don't tell somebody they're having a breakdown when they're having a or um they're having hallucinations when they're having them. So I wasn't telling you before, but. Are you sure that you uh are you sure that you saw Evie? And he's like, Yeah, I'm pretty sure. And she's like, Alright, well, how about you think about it? And then they end that call and then he goes to the library, fucking busts into this library like a super creepo, gets pulled up by security. And this is where you're starting to get pulled into Kevin's story. This is where I almost started to believe it, because Danya pulls him aside and she's like, Yes, I'm Evie. I'm doing an Arabic accent. I've changed my life. This was Ron recommendation from uh, was it from Lori? I think. Or it was from someone. Well, she, she, yeah, she says like, "I've changed my life. Please leave me alone." There's no such thing as family or whatever. Yeah. And then, in the midst of this interaction, he's like continuing to be aggressive. Which, by the way, there's a lot of like Kevin being aggressive in this episode yes. that just makes me super uncomfy. Um, the laundromat scene from season with one. Nora, yeah, it's got that sort of energy, uh, which I think you know obviously is intentional. I think we're supposed to be a little scared of Kevin and what he's capable of, but Justin throws a big, a big muscular guy, and it's not so fun to watch him yell at people. Nope. Um, anyway, but he like continues to press her, and then she sort of is like, "Look, okay, I'm not actually Evie." She told me that if I told you I was, it would help you, whatever, whatever. And so we learn in this conversation that Lori basically told her, hey, Kevin's going to come here. He's going to think that you're Evie. Just 
say that you are feed into the delusion so that we don't like break him out of this and he ends up harming himself or something mm-hmm. like that mm-hmm. um, is what is what uh, Lori's trying to do. And then she has to come clean to Kevin because he calls her and presses her on it. And that's when he looks at the photo and is like, oh, it's not actually Evie at all. This is an actual woman who I just like harassed and assaulted and scared the crap out of. Right. I'm having another de- psychotic break or whatever you want to call it, delusion. That I think mm-hmm. they use that term in the episode. It's sad. It is sad. The moment when you see Danya, just like the actress there, you're like, damn, okay. Because I had like stuff in my notes about like, wow, they really, like when I was believing it briefly, I'm like, wow, something, something, did they not understand the optics of this woman was like bombed out of her home country and became an Arab woman when she left the country? Like, don't they realize that that's like fucked yeah. up? And then yeah. I like basically strike through all my notes. I was like, okay, I was wrong. They, they just played me for like a fool right there. Uh-huh. Uh, and I think it's cool that the episode plays with your expectations in that way. And when Evie slash Danya says, I have, I have compassion for you because you're ill. That's when the camera pans back to Kevin and he's like, oh shit, I'm, am I the baddie? So to speak. Right. Exactly. I think where I don't like Lori here though, because I do think it's like really, it's, it's kind in a way or it's protective for her to to contact Danya and be like, hey, my ex-husband is going to do this stuff. But, like, this is bad therapy, dog. This, like, you are having a break, you and, like, I'm going to let you run through it and then shut you down at the last moment, and we're going to memento the photo and memento the woman in front of you or whatever, and, like, oh, my God, it was actually her. Yeah. It it feels irresponsible, but right. just, just, just like Matt James, not sorry, Matt James, and just like Kevin Sr. in the Outback, I like see their logic in doing it. I see why she would need. She's like, well, what else am I going to fucking do? Like, right. I can't just like sit Kevin down and be like, Hey, you need to go to, you know, I need to, you need to become my patient. It's not going to work like right. that. So, right. uh, yeah, I mean, I think Lori is, has been known to make questionable decisions, uh, and sort of overestimate maybe her, um, her acumen or her control of the situation. I think we've seen her do that many times over. So this feels in line where like uh, you can respect the attempt and say like, okay, you're trying to keep him safe from self-harm. That makes sense. You're half a world away and there's limited things you're capable of doing. Yeah. Um, And, you know, she also, I think, digs at some important things where she asks Kevin like, Hey, are you okay? Are you and Nora? All right. Like what's going on here? Um, But also at the root of what she handles wrong here, I think is a fundamental misunderstanding of Kevin's motivations. Right. Yeah. Because she still sees Kevin as, season one Kevin as the Kevin that she was married to as this guy who like feels trapped in his life, feels trapped in his family and is trying to find a way to escape, uh, is dissatisfied with how his life has turned out and doesn't know what to do about it. Mm -hmm. And she tells that to him like, Hey, you're trying to run away from stuff. And don't you think that's why you saw Evie? 
and Kevin's like, well, I'm not trying to run away. Actually, I'm chasing Nora. I'm chasing someone who's running away from me, mm-hmm. which I think is the actual reason that he sees Evie. He like kind of puts himself in the position of John, let's say, someone who sees Evie, sees Evie running and is on this quest to figure out like, well, why? Why are you leaving? Why do you, why are you refusing my vision of what family could look like? Why don't yeah. you want me, basically? And I think that's what leads Lori to misstep here is that she doesn't really know who Kevin is anymore because he's done all of this growth and changing internally through what we saw in season two um, and is now here for, for different reasons than what it might seem like to her. Um, and I think he makes that realization in this moment and then doesn't do a great job of communicating that to Nora <laughs> when yeah. he sees her at the hotel. Um, but yeah. I think you're picking up on all the things that the episode's going for though. Connection to the family unit. Let's remember back also how sad we felt in, in 301 when John was like, I still think my daughter is alive. And, right. and the like joy that we also wanted to feel when we saw her, when we saw that actress here, and we're like, okay, I guess Evie's back. Maybe we can fix this. Like the episode does a really good job of making you feel like Kevin here of like, I know like again, this, I think it handles it better than uh, three or three handled Kevin senior where it's like, okay, maybe if I do this, I know it's a little weird. It's a little sketchy, but I can probably fix this family. Isn't it worth it in the end? Yeah. And, that's a really um, good point. Yeah. You know, I'll seek that answer and you want to believe it. Whereas I think, yeah, with, with, Kevin Senior in Australia, it's like there's no part of me that believes that that's going to work. It would be cool if it worked. It'd be interesting, right. but I don't really. Yeah, I'm not invested in the same way. Right. Uh, I was invested in how bad the actress who plays Evie is doing her accent. It's not a very good accent <laughs> at all. <laughs> but I can. I like how deliberate it sounds. Like she's trying to talk slowly. You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She knows she's not like nailing it yet. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, he ends up in the hotel scene that concludes the episode. Do we want to get Nora there or do we have more to say about Kevin? Let's get Nora to the hotel and then we need to talk about Kevin. And then yeet, yeet, yeet. Sorry, the yeet (laughs) alarm went off because my John was so funny there. Nora's doing a sting operation. She goes to the place. I'm given Mm -hmm. a ton of anxiety here because on the bus, uh, while waiting for the bus to the location, a woman hands her her baby and says, hey, or at first is like, hey, are you a mother? And she's and she pauses. Oof, she mm-hmm. pauses. She says, yes. And the woman's like, I have a job interview. They're not going to take me if I have this baby. Can you please hold my baby for a few minutes? Right. I'm going to do this interview and then I'll take it back. I really need that. I need this job. She doubts it. It's like, <laughs> you're not going to get this, but there's a SpongeBob episode called, uh, or it's like the, the one where he goes uh, down under. Like, funny enough, <laughs> uh, hmm. he like goes into like the lower world and he keeps waiting for the bus. And every time he runs away, walks away from it, it comes and then he misses it for the next bus. And she kind of has that where she's like, if I hold it, I'm going to miss the last bus. And she holds it. The bus starts to leave. She's like, please hold on. Let me just give the baby back. Runs inside, hands the woman the baby. And she's and then tells the guy discrimination is illegal. I got really mad at the bus guy here because like, can you just can you just hold the door? Like, it's fucking 30 seconds. You're not going to miss your route, dude. Uh, another great musical moment, though, the music here, the repeating chorus is it serves you right to suffer. 
it serves you right to suffer. And I was like, damn, why is this show mean to Kevin and Nora? Why is it? Why are we just having a bad, having a really bad day? It seems like. Uh, and then more music. She gets to the location, and we hear the first instance of "Take on Me" by Aha, played by a, on piano by a Dutch woman. And you're like, what? She's playing a piano cover of "Take on Me." That's really weird. And we learn that these are doctors Eden and Becker, two young Dutch women who are presumably running this program. We don't know their relationship to each other, but they seem to be very close friends, I guess. Uh, and she's worrying about, you know, all the stuff. They they go into, like, sort of the invasive uh, procedures that it takes for her to get prepped for this test. They have to, like, remove her IUD, for example, which is intense. Uh, and then they make her seal herself in an enclosed box because being in the machine involves closing yourself off for a long period of time and they have to make sure that you can do that and she's like you know what sure fuck it <laughs> put me in a box and close it the guys like you can get out whenever you want she's like no i'm good um i would have already given up by now i every step of this way i'm like why does nora keep going nora just is so this is why i think she's going to commit is she's willing to do literally anything they ask her to do even if it's all dubious and suspicious how they ask her to like you know, put on this gown and take out your IUD and get in this coffin or get in this box. She's like so fully committed to going as far with this as they'll take her that uh, she's willing to do anything. And then they give her the test result and they ask her uh, some interview questions and you get the, the kicker, the emotional kicker, which is Dr. Becker, the like thicker accented one says that Nora never really planned to use the device and she's like, oh, you guys have been testing me. Was the woman at the bus stop a test? And again, our faith is tested because the woman goes, uh, we don't know what you're talking about. Right. Do you th- and that's open to interpretation, potentially. Exactly. I love that. That's the kind of stuff I love. Yeah. And they hit her with the ultimate trolley problem again, which is, hey, if you had to personally kill a baby, would you do it if it meant that every- that cancer was permanently cured from the world forever? And she mm-hmm. asks some clarifying questions, and then she's like, yeah, I think I would do it. Children die all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, you know, coming from Nora's perspective, I understand. And they're yeah. like, cool, you're not ready for it. You're not coming in. Bye. Yeah. And you just watch Carrie Coon just melt. Just like, what the fuck? I did all your stuff. I got in a coffin for like a di- half a day. Right. I answered your questions. I did the procedures. Why won't you take me? And you almost get the sense that she's grieving the same way she grieved the moment her family left. Why won't you take me? Why right. aren't I allowed to leave? What am I still doing wrong that they won't let me go? Right. And she is the guy in Australia who immolates himself. Like she's the, she's feeling that same thing of like, what the fuck do I still need to do? Was this all bullshit? But they're like, we didn't even take your money. It's not a scam. We didn't even make you do anything. You just failed. Right. Um. And... So she's broken down. She's like outside chasing them and they've already left in a car and that's mm-hmm. what brings her to the hotel room. Yeah, it's like a cri- it's a crisis of faith moment for Nora, right? Because um she is just not fully allowing herself to surrender to either a the reality that her family is gone and she needs to like figure out what it means to live in a life where they're not coming back or B surrender to some like 
pure and vulnerable faith that she will be reunited with them once again. She like just can't live in either one of those. She has to control the situation. She has to intellectualize it. She has to uh, make it uh, this sort of cynical thing. She has to play the question as a game that she's trying to win by guessing yeah. the thing that they want her to say. Um, and she, in the process, I think we see Nora in this episode uh, somewhat like, honestly, I think unrecognizable, uh, maybe not fully, but you know, she's kind of reached the end of a road of change for the worse where she's really shut herself off from uh, empathy and like any sort of connection to the world. I mean, it's really, really sad to see her reach this point and not receive support from Kevin, not, um, you know, receive support from herself, to be honest, too. Uh, yeah, it's just, it's a, it's a sad plot that ends with her, you know, getting rained on by the sprinklers in the hotel room, which is a, a beautiful image. Stunning. Um, yeah. But it makes complete sense that she would be barred from, from, again, whether this is just like the kind of oblivion of death or it's the gates of heaven, um, she's barred from either one of those because she's not willing to surrender to the fact that like there's something larger than herself that she can't control uh, and maybe can't even know at a certain point. Yeah. Uh, isn't uh, that relatable? <laughs> I honestly, I mean, you're, you are getting me choked up right now, my friend. <laughs> like thinking about this, <laughs> it's and and like I, we go into this hotel scene with emotions at an all time high, and yeah. both you and I wrote in our notes: these motherfuckers need therapy. As two people who have like mm-hmm. had mm-hmm. our lives demonstrably improved by therapy in the past couple of years, it's like yes, fuck, wouldn't it be nice? If you guys just figured it out. And it's like, it's not that simple. I understand that. It's like a funny right. thing to say. But well, like, and the problem is the only therapist that Kevin knows is his ex-wife. His ex-wife! It sucks! No, <laughs> so you hate it's to like see a it. Little, it's a little messy. You Big time. Did you ever think about how weird it is that... Not weird, but how co- in, intentional it is, rather, that Kevin's relationship with Lori fell apart because of their differences over wanting to have a kid? And now Kevin's relationship with Nora is falling apart because of their differences over wanting to have a kid, amongst other things. Yeah, I I, I like that connection a lot. I I I think the Garvey uh, the Garvey's at their best is like a really key episode for understanding the rest of the series because it just like stuff from it keeps coming up in my head, uh, for, mm-hmm. especially for understanding Kevin. Yeah. Uh, and this scene's just amazing. It starts with Nora actually like in a another moment of like foreshadowing. There's a ton of foreshadowing in this episode. She puts aluminum foil over the smoke detector so she can smoke in the hotel room. Yeah. Funny, right? Pretty good. Um, <laughs> and they just kind of open each other up, you know? Why do you, you're going to burn the book? Well, I like the book. I Maybe I'm, the problem is that I'm interested in it. Why didn't you ask me what I was up to today? Well, because... Uh, I was dealing with my own trauma. Why did you give away Lily? Just like the way that couples fight with each other where they lob their worst moments at each other. It's so painful to listen to and watch because I mean, they like it's you and I have often talked about how like being in a relationship with someone is about offering them the ability to destroy you. We don't, (laughs) we don't, you know, 
Yeah, they're, you're giving them the nuclear codes to like your soul, basically, and you hope they never press the button. And this is them pressing the button on each other. Yeah, is exactly this is complete like. global thermonuclear war right now. Literally thermonuclear as Kevin burns the book of Kevin in the sink. So yeah. fire rising. It's so good, guys. I fucking love the leftovers, dude. And I thought that what I was going to like about season three was like, oh, they're going to explain some of the supernatural stuff. And instead, what I like is these like really sad late night conversations in a hotel room in Australia. This is what I came to season three for. This is like character build up and pay off at its finest. Mm-hmm. Nora's lip quivering when Kevin walks the fuck out. Yeah. And then sitting down, her tears mixing with the smoke with the sprinklers. Smoking American spirits, looking for something to feel. Uh, there's a lot of good lines in this. Uh, mm-hmm. He says something about how she she could. I forget why he says this. He says you couldn't do that because you wouldn't be a victim. You'd have to be okay, and people wouldn't feel sorry for you if you did that. Uh, right. That's him talking about her moving on from her kids. From being Lily, gone over her kids. Right, 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 right. Yeah. We get some opera playing in the background. It's just fantastic. And she just lights this one more cigarette as Kevin walks out. And I guess the fire alarm going off, like, evacuated everybody from the hotel. The concierge at the front says it was an explosion. I'm not sure if that was just them misunderstanding it. Like, they thought it was I think the sense I get is there's some unrelated event that happened at the same time. Oh, wild. Okay. Maybe <laughs> maybe Kevin Sr. wanted to get Kevin Jr. out of the hotel, so he like threw a Molotov cocktail <laughs> in it. Who knows? Who knows? I wouldn't be fl- too, too, too surprised. All we know is dad's outside. And With his new like, hot hey, girlfriend. He's <laughs> great. Right. Hi. Right. Um, and he's like, hey, son, are you alone? And Kevin says yes, which was a heartbreaking moment. Heartbreaking. Is this real? Of course it's fucking real, says Kevin Sr. Yeah. You didn't see the news. All flights grounded. You're not going home. And then I, I this is I thought the Kevin and Nora stuff was gonna make me cry, but weirdly, you're not alone anymore. And Kevin Senior going in for the hug is what did it for me. Yeah, I was like, what? The, oh God, the that's that's when people say season three is about reconciliation and healing. Is realizing that family can sometimes, no matter how broken and far apart you can be, uh, can still bring you together like that and make you feel like you're part of something. Right. So well, and, yeah. Well, and it's like <laughs> the thing that I was thinking about is like, you know, we see all these like relationship issues of Kevin Jr.'s on display in this fight with Nora. He can't express his needs. He's like cruel to her and impulsive and like, you know, does just doesn't communicate particularly well um, or healthily. And then he goes outside and meets up with someone who's probably the source of a fair amount of his yes. communication and relationship problems. Yes. And like, imagine how emotionally complicated and confusing it is to have such like a bad experience in this fight. And then it's like, hi, hi dad, you're finally giving me like the love that I think I need from you. <sighs> But it's because you have this, like, fucking weird apocalypse-preventing plan that you want to use me for. It's a lot. It's, this is, yeah, it's messy. Families are messy. Family, It's messy exactly, though. It's messy in the way that families are really messy. 
like sometimes I have a bad day and I come home and I'm like, I miss my parents and I want to have this moment where they give me the big hug. And instead my dad is like, Alan, I need you to print out these tax forms. It's going to take you half an hour. And I'm like, let's fucking go. Let's do it. I'm ready. I'm like crying, printing out tax forms. <laughs> it's that. That's what this moment is. I'm like, sure, dad. You want it? Like, what is that car ride? It's like, sure, dad. You want to go on a, th- a fucking road trip? <laughs> Uh-huh. sure i'd love to hi grace nice to meet you oh your kids died that's so sad fuck yeah yeah <laughs> and and let's not forget the best thing about this scene which is that as we cut back to nora in the dark lights flashing through the window smoking the cigarette as the rain mixes with her or as the sprinklers mix with her tears but take on me just starts fucking blaring let's go whoever licenses <laughs> the song for this scene is a king and that's a non-gendered king. That's just a king move. Yeah. To loop back the I, take uh, on me connection. I have take on me takes. Take on me, take on me's takes. Yes. Give me, give me with him. So, I mean, I went to genius.com. Okay. I'm doing it. And uh, this is this is what I got from, this is the genius annotation for the chorus of take on me. Take on me, take me on. That part of it. Um, there's an intimate level to this text as well. Take on me literally translated to Norwegian, uh, as tapa meg. I don't think I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, this is how you say touch me in Norwegian. Take me on tameg pa means put me on like clothing. The bilingual nature of the first line offers dual meanings. Give me a chance and touch me in the first and take me on meaning I'll fight you or I'll accept your challenge and wear me. So Mm. that's fascinating because, you know, and if you look at the other lyrics of this song, like uh, we're talking away, I don't know what I'm to say. I'll say it anyway. Today's another day to find you shying away. I'll be coming for your love. Okay. This sort of like tepid, like I'm being drawn towards you. I need something from you. Um, and then later, like, I'll be stumbling away or you're shying away. I'll be coming for you anyway. But the, you know, at first I thought like, okay, dorky song. But this song really does a great job of depicting a relationship that has this sort of like, I need you. I'm scared. Please come closer. Go away from me. Come back. Uh, leave me alone. You know, this yep. kind of like back and forth. Dichotomy. Yeah. And that's what's on display here with Kevin and Nora. They're having these moments of like connecting and being pulled apart, chasing each other and dodging each other, uh, being intimate, being cruel. And surprisingly, this song is like a really good fit uh, and capper to, to this episode. So, you know, hats off to that, that choice. Slowly learning that life is okay. It's no better to be safe than sorry, which again, like you could do this for the whole song. Uh, and I think that's like I said in season one that liking the leftovers is about embracing things that are like corny and a little bit awkward and, and yet still being emotionally affected by them. And I think this is a textbook example of like, yeah, take on me. is like the classic karaoke song. It's a quintessential eighties pop jam, but also like it's lyrics are pretty poignant and they are relevant to the scene. No matter how much people like to kind of tease Folks who connect, who go like, oh my god, the lyrics of the song are in the show. Like they they did it right, they did it really well. Uh, 
and so Nora crying there is appropriate. Uh, I loved it. I loved it all very, very much. This is just TV at its fucking finest. What can I say? And Take On Me is just a good song. We Did we not do Take... We didn't do Take On Me at karaoke. We got it. All right. We got to go back. <laughs> That's a tough one. We did karaoke recently in like a, you know, karaoke room. And I made the mistake of making our third or fourth song be What's Going On by Four Non Blondes. <laughs> and I would imagine this song has a similar effect of just like destroying the vocal cords of the yeah. room. You got to build up to it. Yeah. Um, For sure. Did you have any other notes about this episode? Uh, let me take a look here. It was funny that Kevin thought he could get uh, like a faster process through airport security by saying he's a cop. <laughs> <laughs> having that just be totally shot down i yes. like that i did too i'm a cop um, they're like yeah do you have global entry he's like no they're like get him fucking line <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's awesome uh there's a moment where kevin asked for dire- directions from like a big koala there's a guy in yeah. a koala suit yeah yeah the music building up to that and it's like what's this guy gonna be and then it's just a guy in a big koala that was awesome yeah um that's about it fabulous uh let me actually skim mine as well i love the song at the top i loved all the blues music as they were like getting into australia i thought that was all really good uh i want to read more of the book of kevin i would love if they made that like a prop that you could buy uh i think dr eden and dr becker are dating but that's just my head canon um i don't know if we're gonna see them we're probably gonna see them again they're like too good to not be seen again you know the show doesn't usually introduce talk speaking extras without bringing them back more than once. And yeah, I'm excited to see more people come to Australia and this plot to expand even bigger. That's what I got. So let's talk about what we're watching next week. Yeah, Majel. Let's do it next week on the chats over as we are watching season three, episode five. It's a Matt, 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 Matt world. Good job. It's a, yeah. It's a, thank you. Uh, it's Good a mad job, episode. Leftovers. Oh, there's okay. Believing Kevin to be in serious trouble, Matt Jameson leads his fellow disciples to Australia on a quote rescue mission. Yeesh. Matt's coming. Matt's coming. Matt's coming. Yay! I'm excited for bad reasons. Probably. We are also watching season three, episode six, certified. Nora finds an unlikely ally in her quest, while Lori attempts to track down Kevin. Fuck, I guess, okay, Lori's coming to Australia, too. Bring everyone! Bring Tom! Get me... Get, bring, fuck it, bring Christine. Uh, bring Lily, obviously, if you're going to bring Christine. This is what I want. This Give me every episode someone comes, and at the very end, they're going to be like, we're all here, and here we go. Here's the plot. And it's one scene, and it makes me cry a lot. Okay? Good. Thanks. Magellan, let's time to, it's time for us to do our little show here at the end. Where can people find you on the other podcasts? You can listen. You can also hear me on a podcast called Super Smash Echoes that I do with my friend Justin, where we have sort of a video game book club with games that are related to franchises from the Super Smash Brothers games, either games from those franchises or games inspired by them. And you can check us out every month or so at Super Smash Echoes. It's a fun time. Alan, what about you? I'm on a podcast called The Hunter's Quorum. It was formerly known as Jota Quorum. It's a podcast where my friend Six and I and our various guests and guest hosts talk about monsters from Monster Hunter. We talk about Pokemon from Pokemon when those come out. 
we decide if they're worth keeping or if there's too many of them. We need to cut some of them out of the world. It's a comedy podcast, so if you don't care about Monster Hunter or Pokemon, you can kind of just listen to it. It's a fun little chill thing that we do. So check that out on scanlinemedia.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Anyways, hey, guys, it's going to be Plug Zone time in three, two, one. Plug Zone, here I go. I'm going to do the Plug Zone. <laughs> I'm feeling feeling spicy at the end here, Magellan. Can I do the Plug Zone? Yeah. If you have emails, questions, comments, email them to us, please. Chatspot at gmail.com. C-H-A-T-Z-P-O-D at gmail.com. You got tweets? At Chatspod. Follow the account, please. We got we post every time there's an episode and we talk over there. We have a community-run subreddit, which is our Chatspod on Reddit. If you like the show, please consider rating us on your podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc. If you would like to support us financially and get way more of our voices beyond the podcast that we des- described earlier, patreon.com slash chatspod is the zone where we do a lot of cool stuff. Um, we do bonus content like movie commentaries. We pilot shows. We piloted The Leftovers. Fun fact. It's how we got to end up watching it. Um, we talked about the pilot. And we also do chats nights over there sometimes where we just hang out and we talk as friends. So if you liked us being friendly, you know, up top, for example, what if we made that into a whole podcast? Well, we did. And it's been going for a long time over on patreon.com slash chatspot. If you're a $5 patron or more, then you get thanked at the end of every main feed episode. So uh, to those who are in the holy pantheon, thank you. To Arthur, Jen, Kat, Lee, Magellan's mom, Marcus, Michael, Nick and Pat of the Brothers at Infinite War, Six, and Stefan. Thank you for supporting Chats. We have a website which is chatspod.com, and our podcast art here on the main feed was done by Camilla Strader. Camilla, our friend, she's at Camilla Strader on all the social media platforms. And before we call it a close, we take it to the close, we like to do a segment called Chatsums Munch. This is a segment where we briefly tell you about something we've been enjoying this week that's been inspiring or just making us happy, whether it's an experience or a piece of art or pop culture or whatever. Um, and we recommend it to you. So, Magellan, what's your Chatsum for this week? Uh, my Chatsum this week is a little piece of tech that I recently acquired and uh, have been using in my classroom it's uh, sort of a car thing. It's the Spotify car thing. And, uh, you know, if it's you have the product f- name, that's the name of it. If you have feelings about Spotify, totally fair. Uh, you can tune me out and not uh, want to use this thing. Essentially, it's a very smaller than you might expect, uh, smaller than smartphone sized little mini tablet like thing that's a kind of remote for your um, phone for playing Spotify. So, you know, music is playing through my phone. I connect it to a speaker in my classroom. It's intended to be used in a car in lieu of if your car doesn't have one of those, like, screens that a lot of cars have now to control media on. Um, You can get one of these things. But it's nice in the classroom because I can have it in the room and uh, multiple people could... You know, like I could assign a kid the role of controlling the car thing and controlling the music in the classroom for the day, and I don't have to give them my phone to do it. Um, And it's voice activated. You can pre-save playlists. You know, it's like a cute little thing. I got it on sale for $30, which I feel like is the right price for it. I would not pay $100, which I think is the normal price. So if it's not on sale anymore, don't buy it. 
But if it is and you're someone who often plays music uh, with other people around, I think it's a useful uh, little device. So that's what I would say. The what Spotify car thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was just going to say it's really interesting how there's always – like that's such a, an industry – uh, the like I play music around other people, whether it's in my car, in my house, on a speaker, with a mouse. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyways, my chat some this week is a TV show. Believe it or not, we don't usually chat some TV shows because we don't watch much outside of chats. But um, I've been apartment hunting the past couple of weeks, and one of the parts of that ritual that is not absolute pain and suffering is that uh, my future roommate and I. Uh, after we finish, you know, a day of like seeing a couple of weird places, deciding where we want to do it, we would like get some dinner, you know, order some like some like cheap dinner nearby, and we would throw on a couple episodes of Home Movies, uh, which is a cartoon from the '90s that propelled the career of a lot of famous voice actors. H. John Benjamin, one of the primary among them, Lauren Bouchard, who went on to make uh, Bob's Burgers, I believe. Uh, and if you haven't seen Home Movies, the basic premise is it's a bunch of elementary school kids. He's the eight-year-old filmmaker, Brendan, and him and his friends make little home movies in their school in his basement. And they talk about being teenager, becoming teenagers, uh, their life and relationships. And it's just really funny. I don't know how to describe it. It, it feels like 90s stoner humor, but when you actually pay attention to the plot, it's like, damn, this is like kind of thoughtful. Wow. I love this. And uh, every time I put on an episode, it makes me happy. So, yeah, home movies. It's on HBO Max. You can just watch it. It's very accessible. That's what we got, folks. A long one this week as we talked about some of the better episodes of this season. Um, I want to say thank you to Magellan for being the Bruce Quartermain, to my Pam Jolly, because we both love pancakes. Uh, and thank you all very much for listening to the chats overs where sometimes family is a bunch of broken souls wandering the outback together. Peace.